You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Dr. Jim Bradford. For more information on other LifePoint Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. This morning we are wrapping up this series and we are talking about a compartment of our lives that is not often talked about in the church. And it's the compartment of our intellect and our mind. This morning, the title of our morning and this evening is The Mind Matters. God gave you your brain. He gave you your mind. And when you walk in these doors, you don't have to check your mind at the door. This morning, uh, we have welcomed a guest, Dr. Jim Bradford from Springfield, Missouri, to be with us. And he is, uh, I've been around his ministry in a few different contexts, on a local context here at Iowa State through Chi Alpha, but also in a regional context. And I've just been blessed by his, the way he can articulate the gospel to even those that are more intellect, uh, intellectual or analytical. Uh, he has his PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Minnesota. And God, had him, uh, God has had him on an amazing journey that I think uh, can minister very, um, very specifically to our church this morning. So would you welcome Dr. James Bradford as he comes this morning. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, everybody. I am a pastor right now, again, and uh, you kind of remind me of the church that I pastor that would have started 10 minutes ago this morning, and I just feel so at home here. I love the spirit that I feel here, feel God's favor, feel that during the worship time, I just sensed him saying that I'm going to finish what I've started here, Amen. that I'm going to be faithful to do that. So, And you have amazing pastoral leadership. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Drew, for coming, Drew and Tanya, and uh, thank you on behalf of all pastors everywhere, by the way, thank you for Pastor Appreciation Month. You don't know what that means to us, and uh, thank you, thank you for that, and uh, great meeting your family, too. My new friend Bryce down here tells me that he likes math. He's my man, likes math. We'll do a little math this morning. I'm going to keep it painless, but we're going to do a little math today, and you are just a blessing. I, I thank you for your open arms and welcoming me to be here uh, today. You know, this book is a thick book, right? The Bible is the foundation of our lives. It's the, what God did when he created the universe, we theologians would call general revelation because it, revelation revealing, it reveals the nature of God, his divine power. And, uh, and, and, wonderful nature, but, but the specific revelation of God is in the Word of God, the Scriptures, which take us from a general sense that He's powerful and that He's good to the specific realities of what He did to rescue us and reach us. In fact, if you were to summarize the entire Bible cover to cover in one sentence, just one sentence, I mean, what do you think that would be? Just, just the whole story in one sentence. I think it would be this, the God who created us has now acted to rescue us. The God who created us, this is it, cover to cover. The God who created us has acted to rescue us. Now, I spent nine years of my life, uh, mainly at the University of Minnesota, uh, studying what God created. And people, uh, people wonder, wow, didn't, didn't that, didn't study, studying science all those years, didn't that take your faith away? And actually, it was quite the opposite. In nine years of studying the sciences, 
in spite of what you'll hear in the media these days, in spite of what the new atheism says, in spite of what the statistics say, that the, one of the top handful of reasons that millennials are leaving the church is because science is incompatible with faith. Science is becoming the new God in our culture. But you know what? In nine years, I have to be honest with you, I didn't encounter anything that threatened my faith. I'm going to unpack that just a little bit more tonight, but nothing did. In fact, quite the opposite. I would leave, especially in graduate school, I would leave science classes feeling like I'd been in a worship service. Now, there wasn't good music like we had this morning and a spirit-filled worship leader. There was this probably non-Christian science teacher, but he was unpacking the way the universe works. And I'm in awe. And you see, I, I got over early the fact that just because you understand how something works doesn't mean that you don't need God anymore. It's like, I can understand how my car works. Uh, you know, I could get certification in engine mechanics and understand exactly how my car works. It doesn't mean somebody didn't have to design and build it. Just because you understand it, it's like you see a gorgeous painting. And you wouldn't say, that painting is so exquisite that it didn't need a painter. But I would walk away just at awe at the painter behind the painting as I would walk, walk out of science classes. And so I found actually studying the sciences to be a faith-building process. That God, God in his creation is, is amazing. I mean, he's a genius. He's brilliant. He thought all of this up. And the scriptures in Romans 1 are right. What he has made shows us something about his power and his nature. That he's all-powerful and that he's awesomely good. That this is, this is what I came out of it with. And so let's go right, in fact, to Genesis 1.1. If, if, if the Bible is about the God who created us first, here it is in Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Someone said this is uh, proof there's baseball in the Bible. In the beginning. <laughs> and that's my last corny joke for the day. I thought I'd get it out of there, right? Just get it out right away. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the very first proposition of Scripture is that you are here on purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a cosmic mistake. You're not the blind product of the random forces of the universe like you're being told everywhere these days. In the world of cause and effect, God is the cause. And we are here for him and because of him. And it means that you and I are here on purpose. Now, just over 100 years ago, Einstein was publishing the general theory of relativity. And in the general theory of relativity, where he sort of replaced gravity with geometry, came up with space-time curvature and, 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 and how relative the speed of light, space, and time change in a fixed way, all of these things. As he looked, and I've seen the relativity equations, you need to know a little calculus, which is sort of like the language that describes the physical universe. Einstein saw what you would see. He saw that his theory of relativity demanded a starting point to the universe. The problem was, a hundred years ago, virtually no scientist believed the universe had a starting point, that it was steady state. 
No beginning, no end. And obviously, if the universe has no beginning and no end, it relieves us of a terribly tormenting question, how did we get here? So everybody believed that the universe had no beginning and no end. To Einstein's shock, his own theory of relativity demanded a singularity, a starting point to the universe. And, and he was so troubled with what that might imply about the need for a God, the theistic implications of that, because he did believe in a kind of ultimate reason out there, but he, he struggled with the idea of a personal God or, or a creator in the way Genesis 1-1 talks about it. So what he did was add a term to one side of the relativity equations. It was an anti-gravity term, the cosmological constant. It has places elsewhere. But I'll tell you, I don't care how smart you are, you don't just change mathematical equations to fit your worldview. And this is what Einstein did. Years later, he pulled it out and called it the greatest blunder of his life. Now, a hundred years later, virtually every scientist worth his or her salt believes that the universe had a starting point. In other words, the scientific world the last hundred years has come, pardon the pun, light years towards Genesis 1-1. And this awesome starting assumption of the whole Bible that in the beginning, there was a beginning, and God was the first cause behind that beginning. Now, now can we prove that? Well, probably not, because we're limited to the laws of science, and the laws of science only work as we understand them in the dimensions, three dimensions of time and space. Mathematics can envision other dimensions, but we've only got these dimensions. I don't think the laws of science can prove God. I don't think the laws of science, unlike what you're hearing all the time, on the other hand, can disprove God. However, as we understand how our universe is working, we're more and more amazed again, at the theological implications of this. Like a friend of mine worked for Fermi Labs for many years in Chicago. Fermi Labs is government-funded, so they don't need technology that makes money. They just have all the money and time in the world, and they're doing the science that will be technology 20 years from now. And my friend said, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, we'd sit in these seminars at Fermi Labs, and there was a kind of arrogance in the scientific community. Like, we are on the verge of what they called TOE, TOE, the theory of everything. But he said, the more we discover, he said, I'd be in awe every morning as I'd sit at my computer and see what, they did, what happened at the CERN accelerator overnight in Switzerland. And, and, and just, just the unbelievable things we're discovering about how our universe works. That, he said, now there's a kind of humility in fact, he said, I'll sit in those seminars at CERN and it's like everybody's quiet and then you'll hear somebody say, it's almost like God. Well, I want to give you just one fun example, however, because we're realizing that, that the probability of all of this happening by mistake or by accident is absolutely almost impossible. So, Here's one of the more famous scientist atheists of the 20th century. I'm going to quote an atheist, although his work eventually took him towards being a theist. His name is Fred Hoyle, and we'll put this on the screen for you. The, ast the astronomer mathematician Fred Hoyle from Cambridge University, an atheist, he, just for instance, he calculated the odds of 2,000 enzymes, each performing specific tasks necessary to form a single bacterium like E. coli. 
to be 1 and 10 to the 40,000th power. Okay, a little middle school math. You ready, Bryce? A little middle school math. You smarter than the fifth grader, by the way? I hate that show. I don't get it. I can't answer half those questions. But here's a little math I do understand. Okay, 2,000 enzymes. Enzymes are catalysts related to protein structures. Proteins are the building blocks of the 10 trillion with the T cells that you have in your body. Those 2,000 enzymes need to do exactly the precise things in exact sequence, a precise sequence. Hoyle is saying the probability of 2,000 enzymes doing exactly the, the right thing in the right sequence just by chance is one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. So that's a big number, 10 to the 40,000. Okay? 10 to the 2 power is 10 squared, right? What is 10 squared is... 10 times 10, so two times, right? 10 times 10, that's 10 squared. 10 times 10 is 100, right. And 100 is the number one with how many zeros? Two zeros. These are not trick questions, by the way, don't worry. <laughs> 10 to the third power is 10 times 10 times 10, right, three times? Which is? Very good. And 1,000 is number one in how many zeros? So 10 to the 2 power is the 1 with 2 zeros. 10 to the 3 power is 1 with 3 zeros. 10 to the 40,000th power? That's the number 1 with how many zeros? 40,000 zeros. He said the, the odds of 2,000 enzymes doing exactly the right thing in exactly that precise sequence is only one chance in 10, the number 1 with 40,000 zeros added. I mean, in mathematics, we consider anything less likely than 10 to the 15th power uh, an impossibility. 1 and 10 to the 15th. This is massive. So, next screen. This became a very famous quote in the 20th century. A common sense interpretation, this is an atheist writing this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. <laughs> I love that as well as chemistry and biology. And there are no blind forces we're speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. You see, that's, that's where we're coming to. The more and more we understand, and that was even in the 20th century, and we're understanding even more how the universe works and that it's the probability this could have happened by accident. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. So... The very first proposition of Scripture is that God created. You can't prove it because the laws of science are too limited, but it's where it's pressing us that this cannot have happened by mistake. And then I want to go to verse 27 of Genesis 1, where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so here after he's created animals and all of this, at the pinnacle of his creative genius, God creates human beings. And he creates them. Now, we have a pet rabbit. My pet rabbit doesn't like me. It hisses, it bites, it attacks me when I get near it. I've never bonded with my pet rabbit, with our pet rabbit. You know, it's more my wife's pet. But 
You know, there's something different about you as a human being than your pet rabbit. I know everything you hear out there says you're just a higher order animal. And you do have some of the genetic structures of animals, of course, and you have, you know, ways of getting around like most animals, but because we have a physical component to who we are. But there is something true about you that's not true of your pet dog or your pet rabbit or any even semi-intelligent animal out there. You have been created in the image of God. Unlike the animal world, he breathed into you life. He created you, he wired you, he designed you for unique relationship with God. And that means that you have unbelievable value. In fact, I like to think that every human being you're gonna meet this week has an invisible sign hung around their neck. And let me show you a picture of that sign. It just says, made in the image of God, handle with care. I hate to tell you this, but your five-year-old kid brother has that sign around his neck. So sorry to, I hate to tell you that your roommate has that sign hung around his or her neck. And your spouse, believe it or not, has that sign hung around his or her neck. This person is made in the image of God handle with care. The problem with not, and I had, a, I, I still remember a conversation when I was at the University of Minnesota with an atheist, and I appreciated his honesty with me. He said, if God did create us, that would be the game changer. That would change everything else if we knew that we were here on purpose. The thing is, if you're just an accident, then who's going to determine your value as a human being? I mean, please tell me it's not your investment portfolio manager. Please tell me it's not the amount of money you have in your checking account. And please do not tell me that Hollywood or the media is determining your value as a human being. And, and I hope it's not the prejudices of the majority that are defining your value as a human being. You see, more than, the more the new atheism screams at us and, and, and the media tells us you're just an accident, you're not here on purpose, I want to tell you the thing I fear is that human beings are going to be the casualty in the end because it strips us of dignity, it strips us of an immovable foundation to human worth and value. In fact, at some point, you talk about, we believe in moral relativism and cultural relativism. That's deeply ingrained in, ingrained in most of American culture today. But the fact is, if that is true, then where do we get human rights from? Because other cultures believe in demeaning women, you know? And who's to say that's wrong? Who's to say your skin color gives you more or less value? And yet cultures all over the world are, are racially tinged in terms of how they look at people. I want to tell you, it's Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.27 that free me from having to be a victim of anybody else's de definition of value. And then, I love the fact that in Isaiah 40, which is one of the greatest chapters on the greatness of God in all of Scripture, God uses an astronomy lesson of all things to tell us that not only are we here on purpose and not only do we have immense value because he created us, but it tells us because he created us, he, can, he will never lose track of you or me. I mean, you've ever felt like you wonder, God, where are you? You ever felt like 
He forgot your name and lost your address. I've felt that way sometimes. But look at Isaiah chapter 40. This is unbelievable. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these things? So when you lift up, as long as they're not cloudy at night, when you look up your eyes in the heavens, what do you see? Stars, right? That's also not a trick question. You see stars up there. And, and God's using rhetorical questions. What do you see? And, and then he asks, and, and who is it that brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name? And then, verse 26, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now, this to me as a rocket scientist is like incredibly amazing. Here's a picture. You knew, you knew I had to have a picture at some point, right? Here's a picture of our galaxy, it's the Milky Way galaxy. Now, this is a drawing. This is not a photograph. Nobody's ever left our galaxy to snap this on their iPhone. But there it is. You'll see about halfway down from the middle. It's a beautiful spiral galaxy, isn't it? About halfway down on the inside of one of those spiral arms is our sun. That's where we are, and we rotate around the sun. Now, to understand how big the Milky Way galaxy is, and then to go from there to how many stars there are in our galaxy, you have to understand the speed of light is like blazing fast, right? I mean, your car, I drove here yesterday, I might have hit at one point, is my confession, 85 <laughs> miles per hour. 85 miles per hour. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's seven and a half times around the world in one second. That's blazing fast. Now, our Milky Way galaxy, if you start at the left and go across the center to the other side of the galaxy, and you are traveling at the speed of light, you know how long it would take you? 100,000 years. Going seven and a half times around the world in one second. It'd take you 100,000 years. So, there are about plus or minus 100 billion. There's about 200 billion, with a B, billion stars in our galaxy alone. And then, the next picture, and this is an actual photograph. I've seen this galaxy through an amateur telescope, as you probably have as well. This is, you know what galaxy this is? our closest big galaxy neighbor in the universe. It is Andromeda. Yeah, the Andromeda galaxy. Another beautiful spiral galaxy. They say Andromeda is bigger than the Milky Way. And... By the way, Milky Way and Andromeda are in a collision course, but I guarantee you won't be around when that happens. Billions and billions of more stars. That's the closest galaxy neighbor in a universe with billions and billions of galaxies, just like that. Now, I love this. I put on that lens as I read Isaiah 40. Let's read it again. Isaiah 40, 26, that, the last line. Because of his great power and mighty strength... Not one of them is missing. Now, God said, I made this guy. Now, this is semi-poetic. I don't know if he literally has a name for every star, but he just said even at a night sky, you, you could never count the number of stars you can just see in that just from planet Earth through the atmosphere to, to the stars that twinkle. You, you couldn't even count that many, let alone this. The, God's point is, I made them, and I don't lose track of any of them. In fact, every one of them has a name. When, you know, when I go places and they ask my name, what is your name? 
that that's, that's an incredibly personal thing. That is an incredibly dignifying thing. I'm not a number. I'm not just a non-person. When you have a name, it's amazing. And God says, I name the stars. And then in the next verse, he asks the ultimate, so what was that you were saying? Question. Because in the very next verse, uh, referring to his people as Jacob and Israel, he said, why do you complain, Jacob, and why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God. He said, you look up in the sky, I don't lose track of any of those stars that I made, because I made them. In fact, I've named them each. And so what was that you were saying, that I've lost track of you? I want to tell you, you are here on purpose. You have value that no human being can take away from you, and there is no such thing as insignificance in God's economy. I mean, I can just feel pretty insignificant sometimes. I'm just, I'm just one of millions, you know. I'm just one of, And then, if I could just press Isaiah 40, one more step. Not only does he say that, not only does he say, because I've created you, that, th- that there's no such thing as you being insignificant. But, but he said, he will say, and, and, and get this, on the other hand, neither can you wear me out. Verse 28. The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, will not grow tired or weary. So verse 27, he says, he said, what was that you're saying? Like, I lost track of you? Look, I, I, I haven't lost track of anything. There's nothing insignificant to me, and you're not insignificant. And on the other hand, just to close the loop here, you need me, but you'll never wear me out. So I'm the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. And I will not grow tired of weary. This Bryce can be our last math lesson for the morning, okay? Infinity is a number in mathematics, right? Infinity. It's, it's like the number eight lying on its side. That's how we do it. And you can multiply with infinity, and you can divide into infinity, in fact. So here's your math quiz. If I was to take the number infinity and divide it by two, infinity divided by two equals infinity, exactly. Because half of limitless... It's limitless. Okay? Let's say there's a couple hundred people in this room. Infinity divided by 200 equals infinity. There's 7.5 billion people on the face of the earth. Infinity divided by 7.5 billion equals. You know, as a pastor over the years, I've had so many people say to me, oh, I feel guilty when I pray for myself. Because, you know, God's got so many people to take care of. You know, well, first of all, I got over that fat, false guilt long ago. I mean, I pray for myself just in case no one else is. I mean, I can't let this, I can't leave that base uncovered. You know? Plus, the rocket scientist in me tells me, he's the infinite God. And you divide him by 7.5 billion people, not only are we all immensely valuable and immensely significant to him, but, but I can't wear him down. Look at he's the infinite God. You can't slice him. You can't dice him. You can't reduce him. He's just infinitely available to you, even though you're one of billions of people. You just can't change this. This is awesome. This is all because he created us. And that's why we're, he's not here for us. We're here for him. We owe it all to him. 
And yet he closes the loop by saying, but you have unbelievable value. I've freed you from being anybody else's victim. And, and, and I never lose track. I know it feels that way. This is what we're talking fact, not feeling here. I can't lose track of you anymore that I lost track of the stars that I created. And you can't wear me down. I don't care how much you need me. I don't care how many other people need me. I'm infinitely available for all the resources that you need to build up your life and to bring. I thank God he's the healer. I thank God he's the deliverer. I thank God for the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank God he's infinite in might and power. And, and, and this God would say, I know your name. And there's a bill, few billion of you down on that planet. But I don't lose track of you. And you have value nobody can take, take away from you. And because I created you, you're here on purpose. And, and I have everything you need. I want to tell you, there's no, in any religious writing, anywhere on the face of the earth, there's no higher view of God and no higher view of human beings than Genesis chapter 1. I dare you to find a higher view of God and a higher view. All the other myths, you know, that surrounded the people of Israel when Genesis 1 was written by Moses, you know, that best, I mean, I mean, these gods were narcissistic perverts and they mainly created human beings as slave labor. But I want to tell you, Genesis 1 gives you, the Christian faith gives you the highest view of God and the highest view of human beings you will ever find. So God created. But just before we wrap this down, let's go to the end of the sentence. Remember we said the book, the Bible in one sentence would be this. The God who created us has acted to what? Rescue us. Because you see, we all know something's gone terribly wrong in the human condition. I don't need to prove to you that we live in a fallen world. I think one of the empirical proofs that we live in a fallen world is the fact that the better it tastes, the worse it is for you. That's about enough proof for me. <laughs> but even much worse, we know that something has corrupted in the human condition. That our wills, although we're created by God, our wills have become, in some case, almost hopelessly rebellious against God. And our affections have become wicked. I mean, what is that wickedness in me that just loves things that are evil sometimes? I mean, we all know their hearts just seem broken and dark. Now, Carl Sagan, you know, who's the cosmos guy, the cosmos is all there was, all there will be. I mean, most scientists don't believe that anymore, but, but you know, all that. He said the hope of humanity is finding intelligent life on another planet. Because if we do, we'll be able to reassure ourselves, we'll be able to reassure ourselves that intelligent life can exist without self-destructing or annihilating itself. That, to me, would be a very low but accurate view of the human condition. But what I'm grateful for is that the story of the Bible is not God created, period. He created and then sat back and watched to see if we'd self-destruct. He said, God, the Bible says, that the God who created us launched his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission for us. In fact, in your worship folder, in your bulletin, I love the verse that's there. 
says, in this eternal life, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, what? Whom you sent. I read that and I thought, they already know what I'm preaching about this morning. <laughs> Whom you sent. I mean, there's no math in there, but this is life-changing. God created us not to leave us to self-destruct, but he sent a rescue mission on a rescue mission, his son. The most famous verse in the Bible. You all know it, John 3:16. For God loved this world. Remember, we're here on purpose. Every human being has value. No one's insignificant. He wants to be available to us to rebuild our broken lives. So he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus said those words. And then a few years after Jesus left, one of his most famous followers, the Apostle Paul, put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new... What an interesting word to use. He doesn't say he's a much improved product of his original version. He doesn't say if anyone's in Christ, he's a more highly actualized, fulfilled human being? No. He said, if anyone is in Christ, and this is the creator God saying this now, he views you as actually a new creation. In fact, the whole genius of God's creative power is now at work inside of you. And how could that possibly be? Well, I love what one of Jesus' closest followers, the apostle Peter, how he put it, when Jesus died on the cross. It says in verse 24, 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And, and this always stuns me. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Can you imagine that? Now, Bruce Shelley, the, the church historian, he starts one of his books on church history with this amazing sentence. He said, Christianity is the only major world religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its own God. Now, why would you make up a religion in which your own God as a central event is humiliated, more specifically is tortured hour after hour while people are making fun of him? And then finally, he becomes what seems to be an unfortunate religious martyr. I mean, why would you make a religion like that up? There is no, there is no religious system anywhere on the face of the earth that has this as its central event. But this is God's rescue mission. Remember, he so loved the world. The world he created on purpose. That is immense value every human being. He can't lose track of them. And, and he wants to be powerfully available to rebuild their lives. What does he do? He becomes a victim of evil and darkness. He doesn't ask us to improve, right? Christianity is not spelt D-O, what I do for God. It's spelt D-O-N-E, what he has already done for me. What he did was he came and met me at my worst. That's why I don't have to pretend, I don't have to fake it. By his wounds, I am healed. He, he met me at my brokenness and the very profound level of my woundedness. And it says, and my sin was placed upon him as he hung on the cross. 
My sin that creates guilt, that creates this, my rebellion, my, all this stuff that just keeps me away from God. He dealt with it all when he became the ultimate victim, capital V. So I don't have to be anybody or anything's victim. I could be free. And I could have restored a relationship with God. And I was reading about, about uh, Father Damien, a Catholic priest, about 150 years ago. And he ministered to lepers on Molokai Island in Hawaii. Some of you have been there probably, or at least you can see it from Maui, Molokai Island. They used to exile lepers there. He was a Catholic priest, and when he wasn't on the mainland advocating for lepers, he, he actually lived with them. He actually lived with them. In fact, he just lived under a tree for the first while to get his hut built and everything. And, and of course, the lepers loved Father Damien because he cared for him. And, and, and so every morning, he'd have a chapel. One morning, he was getting ready to do chapel. And he was in his little hut, and he was pouring some hot water for some tea, and it sloshed out, and it hit his foot. And he, real, and he realized something, that he couldn't feel the water, even though it was hot. In fact, they say he just poured a little right on there. Sure enough. That morning, he went to chapel. And normally, he'd start chapel by stretching out his hands like this and saying, and saying, uh, and saying, brothers, Welcome to worship. But this time with tears coming down his face, he stretched out his hand and said, fellow lepers, welcome to worship. For he'd caught their disease. I think of that every time I read Second, First Peter 2. Jesus stretched out his arms and he said our sin was placed upon. That, that, that disease that's just corroding our hearts, corrupting our natures. He took our sin on himself. He dealt with stuff that I feel so powerless against otherwise. And by his wounds, I can be healed. I read that about Father David. I said, Jesus, what you did for me, you stretch out your hands. And, and you identified with me in ways I could never imagine because you created me. And you were just insistent at the cost of your own life that you weren't going to let me go and that you were going to bring me back to yourself. That's why I love the last part of the Bible story. You know, as a scientist, I'm fascinated with the first part. He created. But I want to tell you, here's the whole story. The God who created you and me. He has acted to rescue you and me and to give us a personal relationship with him. That's why on your bulletin it says, and this is eternal life, to actually know him, the true God, to be in a relationship with him, which is why, in a way, my rabbit will never be in relationship with God. This, um, you're in his image, and, and, and he wants us to know him and have a relationship with him. And so he took care of all the darkness of our hearts when he died in our place, and he came to himself. And that's the, that's the story that animates my life. I love the science stuff but I love this even better. He came and forgave my sin. He did something for me that no, I could never do for him. And he forgave me, and he made me his own. And then he gives me his spirit by which the heavens and the earth were created. And he starts in me a new creation, not just a renovation job, a new creation. You just close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment in prayer. You've been amazingly attentive. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.